Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Rodney Halbauer was born in Wisconsin in 1948 and later grew up in Muskegon, Michigan. He preferred to be alone, had a mean streak, and was a bully and yearned to be famous. He started his life of crime early and by 15 was serving time in prison. Although he considered himself quite intelligent, he wasn't the smartest criminal. He was released on parole, violated it by stealing a car, and sent right back to prison. A year later, he was released and quickly arrested for breaking into a house. He was sent back to prison. It wasn't long before he escaped, but he was captured, convicted of burglary, and sentenced to five years. That brings us to 1970, when he was released. Within a short period of time, he managed to father a daughter, but he wouldn't get to enjoy fatherhood. He was arrested for robbery, was convicted, and went back to prison and served another four years. After his release, he left Michigan and headed to Reno, Nevada. Shortly after, in December 1975, he attacked a young blackjack dealer, beat her, and sexually assaulted her. He was caught and arrested. The demon that should have been kept behind bars until his trial was released on bail. That's when Rodney went on a murder spree. He made his way to California and the town of San Bruno, 12 miles south of San Francisco. Just 10 miles away, 18-year-old Veronica Casquillo, known as Ronnie, lived with her parents in the small town of Pacifica. She had just graduated high school and was attending college. The city's name in Spanish means peaceful, but that changed when Rodney began cruising its streets. It was in the late afternoon on January 7, 1976, when Ronnie left her home to walk to the bus stop. The Enterprise Journal reported that the pretty dark-haired teenager was heading to a friend's birthday in San Bruno. At 6.10 p.m., she was waiting at the bus stop. Then she disappeared. There were no witnesses, but at some point, Rodney spotted his next victim. He abducted Ronnie and dragged her away from the bus stop and to an area near a creek at the golf course. There, he brutally and sexually assaulted her. Then he took out his knife and stabbed her. Ronnie didn't have a chance to defend herself 
thrusting the knife deep into her abdomen, then her throat thirty times. Ronnie never made it to the party. He dumped her body into the creek and slinked off into the cold darkness. After she failed to arrive, her friends became worried and began searching for her. With no sign of Ronnie, they contacted police who joined the search. The next morning, a high school student heading home for lunch found her partially clothed body. Three miles south of San Bruno, pretty Paula Baxter attended Cappuccino High School in the small town of Millbrae. She focused her time and energy on extracurricular activities. The Times in California reported that she was a majorette in the school band and an instructor for the San Bruno Recreation Department. And she and her friends were into CB radios. Paula left her home around 7 p.m. wearing a light blue parka that matched her blue eyes, and wearing cords and a t-shirt, she donned boots and headed out the door. She borrowed her brother's station wagon. Arriving at the school for a play rehearsal, she turned off the headlights. An hour later, Paula left the school. That's when she encountered Rodney. It's not known exactly what happened, but Rodney abducted Paula. He drove her car to a muddy area five miles away. He sexually assaulted her, then stabbed her four times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Then to make sure she wouldn't survive, he grabbed a piece of concrete and brought it down as hard as he could on her head. He unceremoniously left her body behind a church. He grabbed the keys to the station wagon, drove it up the street, turned the engine off, and vanished into the darkness. When Paula didn't return home, police were contacted. That evening, they found the station wagon, abandoned three-quarters of a mile from the church. Its wheels, undercarriage, and floor on the driver's side, all covered in mud. The keys hanging in the ignition. The next morning, along with police, her CB friends and searchers found out looking for her. It was her friends that found her naked body, her clothes scattered nearby. Police noticed the methods used to kill both women were similar, and the sergeant heading up the team of five police investigators revealed to the media that crime lab tests had proven that both women were murdered by the same person, and that while they couldn't determine his age, he was a white male with dark blonde or light brown hair, and that he was probably right-handed. Rodney quietly slinked back to Reno, Nevada. Michelle Mitchell lived in Reno and was a pretty 19-year-old sophomore attending university to become a nurse. 
She lived at home with her two sisters and her parents, who were both school teachers. In high school, she was popular amongst the students and belonged to the yearbook committee, the drama club, the drill team, and the pep club. Three weeks later, Michelle was home when her father was at a local bowling alley. He was diabetic, and she left the house to take him some orange juice. The Reno Gazette Journal reported that Michelle drove her Volkswagen Bug for the short 10-minute drive to the alley. But 10 minutes later, she passed the university. It sputtered and stopped. She borrowed a phone at the university to call home and told her mother that she'd broken down. Barbara told her daughter to wait, and she'd drive over. There were no witnesses when Rodney grabbed Michelle and forced her to go with him. A block away, he saw a house. The windows were dark. He pulled her down the driveway and into a garage in the backyard. Michelle tried to fight him off. The cigarette hanging from his lips fell to the ground. He managed to tie her hands behind her back. Maybe he didn't expect her to fight back, or he was running out of time. She was still fully clothed when he pulled out his knife and used a sharp blade and slit her throat from ear to ear. Her body lay on the dirt floor, blood pooling on the cold, hard ground. Barbara arrived to see the Volkswagen, but no Michelle. She peered into the car and saw the orange juice. She raced to the bowling alley and fetched Michelle's father. Together, they drove around looking for her, then alerted the university police. They searched too, but at 9.45 p.m., they contacted the Reno police. An hour later, a couple returning to their home stopped in their driveway and opened the door of their garage. The woman let out a blood-curdling scream at the sight of Michelle. Police later determined that Michelle's car had broken down due to a cracked distributor cap. In addition to Rodney, someone else was murdering women. In a four-month span, five women were killed. Based on the location of the first victim, the killer was nicknamed the Gypsy Hill Killer. Women in the city were terrified. Sales of guns skyrocketed, and police offered classes on gun safety. Three months later in May, Rodney went on trial for the attack and attempted murder of the blackjack dealer in Reno. He was found guilty and sentenced to life at the Carson City Prison in Nevada. A year later, Rodney was up to his old tricks. He used the cover of a softball match to stage another escape. He fled back to Michigan and kidnapped his daughter, who was now seven. They were on the run for a month before he was captured. Authorities agreed to drop the kidnapping charge in exchange for his return to Nevada.
Another six years were added to his sentence. Rodney remained in prison for the next 11 years. But he wasn't content to stay behind bars. The walls were closing in on him. In December 1977, he and another prisoner made it onto the roof of the prison. They walked within 40 feet of a guard tower, but the guard didn't spot them. They managed to cut through not one, but two chain-link fences and fled. This time, Rodney was on the run for nine months before he was captured. Rodney made another attempt to flee his free accommodations. He cut through the bars in his cell, another set outside his cell, then cut through the bars on the windows. He was within 300 feet from finding freedom when a guard spotted him and fired his weapon. Rodney surrendered. Meanwhile, in 1980, Kathy Woods, who'd worked as a bartender in Reno, moved all the way across the country to Sheeport, Louisiana, to be near her mother. The Kathy was having issues with her mental health, and her mother committed her to a psychiatric hospital. There she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. She confessed to a counselor that she had a vague memory of killing someone named Michelle in Reno. A confession that would garner her a better room at the institution. The counselor contacted the local police, who then contacted police in Reno. Kathy was convicted of Michelle's murder based on her confession. The Supreme Court later overturned her conviction. She was tried again in 1984 and found guilty. This time, her conviction was upheld and she remained in prison for a crime she didn't commit. There must be something about spending Christmas in prison that Rodney didn't like. Perhaps he didn't look forward to the Christmas cake or pumpkin pie. In December 1986, he escaped again. He stole a car and headed to Medford in Oregon. With no one to hold him back and to see the victims laid out before him, he was free to prey on unsuspecting women. Within days of his escape, he attempted to steal a woman's purse at a shopping mall. She refused to let go, so he stabbed her 19 times. The young woman managed to escape and was able to identify him to police. Approaching 40, it appears Rodney has slowed down a little. He was caught, arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 15 years. But first, he was returned to Nevada to finish serving out his sentence in the state. A psychiatric report prepared for the court determined that although Rodney had only earned a high school diploma in prison, he was intelligent, but had a severe personality disorder and a propensity 
toward criminal behavior, and that he had poor impulse control and was a narcissist. In November 2013, after serving 37 years, Rodney was released on parole. Before he could even inhale a breath of air outside, he was extradited back to Oregon to serve his second sentence. While incarcerated there, authorities took a DNA sample and sent it for testing. Less than a year later, in 2014, the results came back. Rodney was a match to DNA collected 38 years earlier at Ronnie and Paula's murders. And remember that cigarette butt that fell to the ground as he murdered Michelle? It came back a match. With the new DNA evidence, Kathy Woods was granted a new trial. Before it could proceed, the prosecution dropped the case and she was exonerated. After 35 years of doing time for a murder she didn't commit, she walked out of prison. Those who helped her say through it all, she maintained her sense of humor and wasn't bitter. Rodney was extradited to California and charged with Ronnie and Paula's murders. He pled not guilty. His trial was delayed many times. He insisted on representing himself, and there were questions about his mental ability. Eventually, a jury determined he was sane, and he went to trial in 2018. He was found guilty. At his sentencing, he demanded the judge grant him a mistrial, but the judge denied him. Responding to his outburst, Ronnie's mother told him to shut your damn mouth. The judge sentenced him to two life sentences. Kathy Wood successfully sued the city of Reno and state of Nevada and was awarded almost $9 million. The money helped her spend her remaining years comfortably. She only enjoyed seven years of freedom before passing away in July 2021 at the age of 72. Rodney was scheduled to be extradited to Nevada for Michelle's murder, but to date, that has not happened. As of this writing, Rodney is 74 and serving his sentence at the Oregon State Correctional Institution, and his earliest release date is tentatively scheduled for May 2026. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. Helen was a successful realtor in Los Angeles worth millions, but it wasn't enough. In their 70s, she and Olga targeted two men they thought no one would miss, took out life insurance on them, then ended their lives. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support.
by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Fastlane Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.